My humble apologies to those that are in the Sunday morning class. We are not dealing with Islam now. It's Wednesday. That's Sunday. <laughs> so uh, let me write history the way it really happened, not the way Doug tells it. The uh, speaker, Jake, uh, called me or sent me an email saying that uh, a uh, campaign to Washington, D.C., uh, actually, I guess a permit to speak on the steps of Capitol Hill had been bumped from uh, July or somewhere wherever it was supposed to be till, till uh, this week. And he couldn't pass that up and was asking for permission to come another time. And I told him we would try to put him in. And I thought, well, steps of Capitol Hill or steps of Del Rey? I reckon, <laughs> I reckon uh, I'd like for you to talk to those people there in Washington. So go and do. We wanted you as a congregation to get to know um, a, uh, a gentleman that's been preparing for several years from the preaching school in Memphis. The congregation here is involved in many different support uh, ways of the evangelism and pre- the preaching ministry, and he's one of them, and he's graduating, and uh, uh, we pray God's blessing. He will be able to serve a long life until Christ returns and serve in ministry, and uh, we wanted you to get to know him well, and uh, he wanted to be here, so we'll try to plug him in if we can in the fall sometime. We've already got three more of the summer series. Uh, the easiest thing to, to have done would have been to simply get a speaker that... Uh, can preach God's word and just tell them, preach, bring your favorite lesson. Uh, on the other hand, there was the summer series and the topics. And this is twice the topics that I chose came back to hit me. <laughs> it's called the boomerang effect, and it's hit me twice, so that's what I've chosen to do, and I hope it's meaningful to you. Uh, I did not have a lesson prepared on this, so from now on, when I do summer series, I'm going to do lessons that I, have, I know something about <laughs> in case they come back at me uh, like boomerangs. Open your Bibles, please, to Ezekiel chapter 18. We're going to read the whole thing. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. I'd like you to read the whole chapter for yourself. You can read it in your version, of course, if you want to follow along with the one I'll be reading. will be New, New American Standard. The summer on Wednesdays, we have been looking at great passages in the major prophets. There are 12 minor, 5 major And we are in Ezekiel, only about three stops in each prophet. There are some prophets that are longer than others in length. Ezekiel is one of those, and there's a sense in which it's a shame to only mine uh, one particular verse. Our speaker last Wednesday night did an excellent job. We are so grateful that Chris Clevenger uh, brought his uh, passion and his uh, study. He told you he didn't have a file on that either. So <laughs> I'm catching people off guard, including myself, with these topics. And uh, that's okay. Choose God's way is how we're going to spend the last 20 minutes of the class. But first we have to uh, drop into the departure point, which is the historical uh, inspired record of a prophet of God by the name of Ezekiel in particular, not just one verse, but a whole chapter. And then we'll focus on a couple of things, uh, we hope. Before we read, to drop in wherever you've been. Maybe you got caught in traffic today, right? I've been told there were a lot of wrecks, tragically, in Montgomery, and there was a lot of traffic on Atlanta Highway and 231. And Maybe you've had a hectic day, a busy day. Hope your life's going well. Hope that things are going well at work, health-wise. And I guess if you enlarge that picture and ask, how are things doing... Uh, with regard to our, our country, our, our city, 
Um, how would you feel about that? Sometimes in a history class I ask them, um, you know, there's a theory, a theory that says that we are doing better. Things are getting better. This is one theory, okay? It's called a period of adjustment. We've got some problems, but things are getting better. Important people, sensitive spirits are giving answers, solutions to. And so if we listen to them, we make the right choices, we're, we're going to get better. Then there's the best period of all to be living in in a human culture, which is uh, a period of balance where things are not perfect. They never are in human terms. There are some wars. There are some uh, ecological devastations, but they're minimized. They're, uh, things are, things, we feel good about an educational system, about uh, many things. That's called a period of balance. We can identify a few of these in history. Uh, the question is, are we living in one right now? <laughs> and if I, well, let me tell you the third one. third one is, things are like this. Things are getting worse. This is not just a pessimist point of view. It's a, it's a uh, we are not listening to the right people. We are um, discounting history and the lessons that we should have learned from the past, from our parents, from, from the Bible. <laughs> we are dismissing God out of the picture. Uh, so that would be uh, a definition of that, and one word would be chaos. It's not nice to be living in those times. You, if you have children, you say, I, I, I don't want them to live through chaos. I would like to be in an adjustment period. I'd like for us, my generation, to be responsible for something better. Something better, you know, so that I can hope for my children, my grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren, if those are to be, by the will of God, that things will be better they will listen to God more, that we will not be arrogant, that our politicians will, will be the right ones that we put in place, and our teachers will be good, and, uh, and it goes on like that. If you had asked Ezekiel, who lived 2,600 years ago, what's your story? What are you going to tell the people, people of Israel, at the turn of the year 600 or just after that, about 595? He was called to be a prophet of God. That means you speak from God to the people. And he was called to be that in a time when clearly it was not like this. It was not like this. There was no doubt. Take a poll. <laughs> you'll, find, you'll find most people saying, oh, no, this is, this is not going well. It's not going well at all. Not going well. Hmm. Ezekiel. His name, we don't choose names that mean things anymore, but they used to. May God strengthen. That tells you something already. May God strengthen uh, is the meaning of his name. And uh, so appropriately does he coming along to, to, to be the spokesman for God. May God strengthen you for what's got to happen, for what's going to happen. He's the preacher in the period of exile, Babylonian exile. What has happened historically is that the really, really bad guys called the Assyrians, they, uh, they lived by the sword and, and died by the sword. You see, the Medo-Persians had uh, come out of, out of uh, the destruction that Assyrians had brought to them and, and brought revenge on the Assyrians. And Nineveh had fallen in the army of uh, the last uh, king of uh, Assyria had been defeated. That had happened in about 609 when they destroyed Nineveh completely, 609 B.C. And, uh, and then, however, there was the new kid on the block. That would be the Neo-Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And there's three end names here, uh, Nabopolassar, Nabonidus, and 
Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you recognize a third one. They are grandfather, father, and son. Nebuchadnezzar is the one that maybe you remember the most because he rules for about 50 years, between about 605 and 555 before Christ. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. For 50 years he ruled the world, and by all accounts, they thought they were going to rule forever. They don't. See, we know the rest of the story. The Neo-Babylonians, as powerful as they are, are only going to rule about 80 years. That's it. And then the new guys are going to come. They're called the Persians. But right now, where Ezekiel is sitting, he's telling the people who see the Babylonians now on the stage of history, he sees, uh, well, bad stuff is going to happen. He's the preacher of the exile. The Assyrians beheaded. The Babylonians deported. Which means, instead of killing you, they simply took the most highly educated, highly skilled politicians, engineers, whatever, the, what they thought of as the high class of society, and parked them right outside of their, their capital. You live here. You grow up here. You have children here. We're going to keep an eye on you. And this is called the Babylonian exile. Far away from the house of God in Jerusalem built by Solomon. We're talking... 1,500 miles, and they don't have planes and cars. The house of God, the only place where you can offer sacrifices for the people, it lays out there. And at 70, 80,000 is the estimate. There are actually several waves. Mr. Ezekiel is part of that deportation, and he is parked in the, in the shadow of the massive pagan capital of Babylon. And, uh, and uh, in about two years after he gets put there, is when the uh, things are going to start happening for him. The life of a prophet was usually between the ages of 30 and 50. And what's kind of interesting about the life of Ezekiel is we can see that it's about that long, 20 years, that he acts as a spokesman for God. And, and nobody likes to give bad news. <laughs> nobody. Not even what you and I consider to be the, you know, the, the negatives, the, the pessimists. No, no. Nobody likes that job, and Ezekiel didn't either. But he, he had an important job. He's there at the same time that Jeremiah is back home, back in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah's older. Jeremiah is uh, possibly unaware of him, but God is using people to speak to the, his people. And uh, I guess in that parallel you should see ourselves. We are all called to be prophets. We are all called to speak to our generation, to speak to our people. And so I'd like for you young people and old to think in those terms. We are all of a royal priesthood. Is that correct? There's not a select few that are. We are all called to be spokesmen for God. I can't speak at your high schools, at your junior highs. I can't do that. But you can. I can't speak at your workplace. I can only speak at mine or try to do that. Who's your audience when you share your faith, when you share the news? His audience was the Jewish captives, the ones that had been uprooted from home forcibly and taken to live for the rest of their lives and their children and grandchildren and who knows how many generations further. Daniel is actually there too. You may have heard of him. He's actually in the palace. You see, he's one of the elite that live inside the palace, but uh, not, not Ezekiel. And he's talking to a group of people, a community forced from their homes, who had broken faith with God. Is that a saw, an alarm, or what? I was trying to guess what pitch it was, a B-flat, I think. 
What is that? <laughs> they had broken faith. They had broken faith. Bad stuff happens. You know, people start asking, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? Why does it happen to us? Why did it happen to you? Why does it happen to us? Let's start with that one. Children of Israel had broken faith with God. The Assyrians are pagans. They live by the sword. They will die by the sword. But remember, Nineveh, there was a king and there was a time with Jonah in which they actually did repent. It's not your ethnicity or your language that matters. It's your heart. It's always your heart. How's your heart? Well, the heart is still broken faith, and yet they're saying, why is this happening to me? These are times of great confusion. If you'd ask them, how are things going? Like this? Are you in the best of times? Or is it like this? They said, oh, clearly, we've been deported. We're parked outside of this pagan foreign nation. We're 1,500 miles away from the house of God. What do you think would be their language, their message? The prophet had two tasks as a spokesman of God. Before the year 586... Then after the year 586, you see, for the first nine years, approximately, of his, he's trying to tell them, it's bad. It's going to get bad. It's going to get worse. They can't conceive of a time when the house of God would not be. It's been there for four centuries. God established it through Solomon. They can't conceive of that. I guess there's really not a good comparison. Can you not conceive of, oh, I don't know. A tornado blowing away this structure that houses us so wonderfully with air conditioning, padded pews. Can we conceive of it? Not that it's the same, because they only had one place where we, we are supposed to be detached from bricks and mortar and things like that. But can you conceive of your life and your faith detached from a locality and from a building? They couldn't conceive of it. They were far away from it, but it was still there. But Ezekiel had to tell them something to the effect of, oh, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Before 586, he has to combat their limited optimism about how they're doing. Well, we still are Abraham's seed, trying to be optimistic about things. We still have a Jewish king on the throne, uh, the Babylonian king had replaced the ones that they had, but had put his, his relative on. So theoretically, this had, it still had a descendant of David on the throne. But um, the main thing they were optimistic about, well, the temple still stands. So no matter how bad things are now, they, uh, you know, maybe in, in 10 years or 100 years, things will get better. We'll still have the house of God, but uh, they're not. They're not going to. That's what happens in 586. Nebuchadnezzar comes to punish completely after deporting twice the rest of the, the Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes that have not fallen under foreign domination. It's, it's the unthinkable. It's like a, an atomic bomb, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Wow. Gone. Unthinkable. 586, that's the, that's the watershed moment historically for them. After 586, they're in complete despair. They can't conceive of how we're going to continue as a people of God if God doesn't have a house anymore. Utter despair. Chapters 33 through 48 are about that. We're in chapter 18, and that's where we're going to read in just a second. Babylon. 
our soldiers have been there recently. It's there in the desert sands. There is part of the uh, blue lapis lazuli gates of Babylon. And part of it is in a museum in Germany. And, and you can still see a remind, reminder of the splendor, of the beauty. But remember, you're parked outside of these walls and you, by force. And it's a reminder to you of the power of a pagan people rather than the power of your own. And there's a map of what... Uh, if you can see it, of what it looked like, evidently Babylon, with the hanging gardens, which were probably a three, four, five, ten, who knows, 15-story high building that Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife with a gigantic zoo or garden on top. That's the best that we can figure. Wow, Babylon. Beauty and uh, exile, that's what it meant to them, and utter destruction, that's what it meant to them. Today, if you go visit, you'll find that they've tried to rebuild some of that that the power of Babylon rebuilt some of the walls. So yeah, there are the desert's sands in Iraq today along the Euphrates River, the reminder of the geographical place where in 586 this place was. Ezekiel's message is unrelenting to the people that are parked outside those gorgeous and awesome walls of, of Babylon. Unrelenting. His message is long. There are lots of chapters in this book. Only Psalms, Jeremiah, and Genesis are longer in the Old Testament than this particular book. We're only dealing with one chapter. He's uncompromising. He, you know, when you get leveled by someone, you expect, you know, the grace moment to come. And now you're going to tell me some good news, right? And that just doesn't seem to come with, with him. His language seems to us, even as readers of the future, very hard. And sometimes it seems offensive. There's absolutely no softening. It, was it his personality that was that way? No, no. It was how do you shake a people? How do you get them to think about themselves? His job was to comfort the afflicted. But it was also to afflict the comfort. The ones who relied on themselves and on military power and money, and it was to afflict them, to shake their foundations, to not make them feel good. I'm here to not make you feel good tonight. I'm here to make you, make you shudder, would say uh, Ezekiel in his message. He paints an incredible, grandiose picture of God. He had visions starting at the age of 30. And his last one that we have recorded is about the age of 50. And that's why I said it's interesting that that is the age in which usually prophets carried out. And so here he has for about 20 years visions from God. And he paints grandiose pictures and visions of God. But then there's the contrast, which is his people. There's God. And then there's his people. He didn't want them just to be revolts by the picture that he was Turned off. Uh, He wanted them to be moved to change. Repentance. Change of heart. Not just, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, and I'm going to do something about it. It's not time to think about it anymore. It's time to do something. This This is Ezekiel's message. Are you glad that you didn't have that job? I am. But There's a sense in which maybe... We still have that job to do it with tact and with love, but still, how are we doing? How's our society? How's our world? Uh, without being pessimistic, could we be realistic and say, how are we doing? How's our government? How's our culture? How's Montgomery? 
How's your workplace? How's your, how are your schools? How are you doing? Um, Ezekiel chapter 36, which we're not going to read, is going to say this. You, to the Israelites, he says, you need to stop uh, arguing with God and bringing God down and assaulting him. You create your own messes, and then you want to bring down with it. His, listen to what he says in a later chapter. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. This is God speaking to his people through Ezekiel. Which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. You have profaned my name among pagan nations. The nations, pagan nations, will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will vindicate my name. You are not representing me well. You're not representing me at all. <laughs> They're going to know who I am. If they don't know it through you, they'll know it through another way. So, chapter 18, let's read it, please. Just a quick breakdown of what it's... The first four verses is a new principle that he puts before him. It's actually not new. That's why I put it in brackets. It's not new. He's correcting something false that they've been teaching or believing. He's going to correct it. So it's not new, but he's going to set things straight. Then he's going to give, like a lawyer, three case studies. Then he's going to anticipate the children of Israel raising their hand and objecting some things. So if you would, New American Standard, I'm reading. You read in your Bible, please. The word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Here are the, court, the cases, three of them. Father, a son, and then another kind of son. Father, if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness, does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, defile his neighbor's wife, or approach a woman during his, her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with Clothing. If he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Case number one. Case number two. And you'll recognize the standards by which We are to be judged. They are to be judged. He may have a violent son, verse 10, who sheds blood, who does any of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things. That is, he even eats at the mountain shrines, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor, needy, commits robbery, does not restore pledge, but lifts up his eyes to the idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on 
his head. Case number three. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins which he committed and observing does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or lifts up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or oppresses anyone or retain the pledge or committed robbery. But he gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing and he, he keeps his hands from the poor and does not take interest or increase but executes my ordinances and walks in my statutes he will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. So we have a father and what he does. A son and what he does. Another kind of son, what he does. Then objections. Verse 19. Yet you say... Why should the son not bear the punishments of the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observed, all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Let me listen to that question that God asks again. Verse 23. Do I, says God, have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Objection number two. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sins which he has committed. For them he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and and dies because of it for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions which he has committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. But the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit." 
Let me stop there and just highlight in a few minutes I have left two things. Because the reading is lengthier than normal for our attention spans. Two things. Well known is the parable of the sour grapes. It's right there, right at the beginning. And what resonates out of that is the following principle that God says, no, no, whatever you've been teaching, believing, let me set this straight. The soul who sins will die. The soul who sins will die. And two, oh, you think I'm not fair? You think I'm not fair? Really? You think I'm not fair? Please remember these two in this chapter. Start with the first one. It's the sour grapes parable. If a father eats sour grapes, the children will have an effect on their teeth. That's the way they put it. It was like a a parable, and everybody believed it and taught it. And he says, false, false again. Not true. It's kind of like the victimhood syndrome, you know? Uh, One of the greatest examples within our culture, you know, it's um, when the, I've used this illustration before, the, 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 the person at McDonald's, I've ordered a hot coffee, and she gives it to me with just, you know, no space at the top. And, and, and you know, you, you, you take it, and you want to put cream and sugar in it, but there's no room. And besides, you can't drive with it up the top. Well, the first thing you need to do, that's what I do, is roll the window down and pour some of it out. If I proceed to try to drink it while I'm driving, it will spill on me, will burn my leg. Oh, but wait, I can sue McDonald's. That's a good idea. I've already told you about a tragic event in, in my teaching at Florida State one time when they have actually a, a circus and they, uh, they train people to be in a circus. Now, that's, that's a class you want to take. Um, but one of my students, uh, influenced by alcohol at night, uh, climbed over a fence, climbed over a second fence, went up on the high wire. There was no safety net, fell to his death. And that's the tragedy of it all. Now, the question is, whose fault is it? But of course, the parents sued the university for not having enough fences, I guess, to go over. I, I use those illustrations from a personal experience, but also from a book that you can read that analyzes in American culture what's called the victimhood syndrome. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault, but it's not my fault, which is what Israel was saying to God 26 centuries ago. It's not my fault. Some blame the cultural environment. I was born to the wrong ethnicity, to the wrong, uh, to the wrong city, to the wrong type of parents to wrong and of course there are factors there that are important that do influence children and their their possibilities and their opportunities but that said that said can you blame everything on your parents can you blame everything on your school on your teachers on can you do that cultural environment it's a factor i'm not minimizing it but i'm i'm saying wow can are we going to be able to say to god it was the environment i grew up in it was the environment. Some blame Adam. There are some major Christian denominations that blame Adam. My Catholic friends do that. It's called original sin. They say you were born with it, and therefore you need to be baptized immediately because otherwise you'll die spiritually with it. True or false? I say false because I can't find it in Scripture. Babies are innocent. They do not have inherent guilt in them. Somewhere along the way we start to realize difference between good and bad 
We know it. And we can't blame it on Adam. Not anymore. Not at all. The Israelites weren't going as far back as Adam. They were blaming their ancestors. They were saying, it's my father's fault. It's my grandfather's fault. They weren't going back all the way to the beginning. But they were blaming the just preceding generations. It's their fault from other choices that I make. But what did you read in Ezekiel 18? What did you read? You're a smart reader. You're an intelligent reader. What did you read? I'll tell you what I read. I read individual responsibility. That's what I read. What did you read? What Ezekiel is telling the Israelites is that dictum, it's my father's fault, it's my grandfather's fault, is false. It won't play before God. It will not. You cannot blame it on somebody else. Once you know the truth, Terry, you can't blame it on somebody else. You can't point fingers at anybody. Personal responsibility. Conversions may happen in large groups, but they're not mass conversions, correct? It's one at a time, right? A a mob may drive you to do something, but we can't point to the mob. We say, they were throwing you know, bottles full of gasoline, and so I did it too. It won't fly. doesn't fly with human justice either, or it shouldn't. It won't fly with God. Individual responsibility. That's what Ezekiel 18, verse 3 and 4, 19 and 20. You can look back at those verses that we read over and over again. That's the principle for the children of Israel of 595 before Christ, and it's the principle for us today. It's the sour grog. Here's another one that's there and towards the end of the chapter. The objection, God is not fair. He doesn't treat us fair. He expects too much. God is not fair. In the view of the Israelites, and Ezekiel is responding to that, and God is responding to that, he seemed, God seemed to be treating classes of different people in a different way, and they saw that as unfair, so hurling this, God, you're not fair. And God answers back and says, you judge fairness on a personal standard. You sit outside Terry, and you judge what's fair or not based upon what what you want. You you decide what's fair for all these people in the auditorium based on what you want. You are not an absolute standard. God, a holy, righteous God, is an absolute standard. He loves us enough to give his son, and he's righteousness, righteous and holy enough to set the standard. He's the only one who can set the standard of true justice. And so here we are like them, sometimes hurling at God. It's not fair what's happening to me. God's way is to deal with different men and women according to their deserts. God knows exactly what your health is, what your opportunities are, what your difficulties have been. He knows every thought, every hair of our body. He, he, who better than he can judge what's fair for me or you or anybody else? He's the standard and the only standard above all that. Choose God's way. So I have five minutes. Throughout the rest of Scripture, you will find indications. I'm just going to read them without, without uh, comment or much. First Corinthians 3.19, Paul says, The wisdom of this world is folly with God. It is written, He catches the wise with their craftiness. You think you're smart? You're only smart when, when you trust God. 
That's when you show your wisdom and you're smart. Not by any other standard. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What you may want notice, interesting, in that middle part of that verse of John, is the three ways in which Satan tried to tempt Christ, the temptation of Christ, Three things that he put before him, and each one of those responds to those three ways. Those are your weaknesses and mine, because we're human. And God knows it, and Satan definitely knows it, because he tried it with the Son of God. (laughs) And he failed, and he failed. Recognize that which is not from God. Then you will be wise. Choose God's way. Isaiah chapter 55 My thoughts are not your thoughts, says God, to his people, to his creation, to us. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That doesn't mean that what you and I think doesn't matter. It does to God. But what matters is, do we care about what God thinks? That's the question. Do we care even in the small things? What does God want out of me? What does God think about this decision that I have to make? What is God's opinion on this? And we seek it out in Scripture. This may be too small, so I'll read it for you, but you know the text. James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and evil practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Psalm 19 and verse 7. We know this, but I want to remind myself on this Wednesday night. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The person that has the least Education in human terms, but knows God is the wisest among us. First Corinthians chapter two and verse thirteen. We impart this as Paul in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He's saying this to the Corinthian church, who have a lot of um, rich and highly educated people, and he says. Don't put your trust in that. James chapter 1 verse 5, same book we quoted from before. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. The contrast between a, a person that's thinking in spiritual terms, and you can do that 
from the very beginning of her walk with Christ. You don't have to wait till you're old to do this. What kind of person do we think in spiritual terms rather than in physical terms? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. No wonder you don't get much out of worship or class or whatever because you're not seeking spiritual growth, discernment. You're not coming to bring. You're coming to be entertained or to get. What kind of person are you? What, what, what are you doing? Whoever knows the right thing to do, says James, and fails to do it for him, it is sin. If you know. So that's what I've got to repent of today. Because undoubtedly we've all done something. No. Shouldn't have done, shouldn't have said. So we ask God's forgiveness. Isn't that the greatest gift of all? I am not going to read the rest of these. I'm going to take you straight to the last verse of Ezekiel 18. This is how it concludes. I didn't read it. You probably noticed. God says, Why will you die, O Israel? He's talking to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. This is before the Babylonians come and destroy the temple. Why will you die? He doesn't want them to. I have no pleasure, says the Lord God, in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, turn and live. Choose God's way. 